0: May me ask you, how well do you feel like you understand Christianity? Just as a whole, how well do you feel like you understand what Christianity is all about? There's a lot of different ways that perhaps we could uh, we could tackle uh, answering that question. But let me uh, pose an answer to you that uh, may may get you thinking along the lines of what our passage is going to uh, to focus us in on. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, we, we have a resource table actually in, in the back. If, uh, if you haven't ever read Knowing God and you're looking for something uh, almost even devotionally that you could read to encourage you in understanding more of who God is, uh, Knowing God is a, a great resource. Uh, but he says in that book, uh, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child. And of having God as their father. If you want to understand Christianity. Think about how much you think about being God's child. And God being your father. He says if this isn't the thought that prompts and controls our worship and our prayers. Our whole outlook. It may mean that we don't understand Christianity very well. Everything that Christ taught. Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old. Everything that's distinctively Christian. As opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. When we think about God, uh, we we and we think about who it means and what it means for God to to be father. Uh, This this really gets at the, the core understanding of the nature of God. Uh, what what the Bible presents to us is that God is triune, uh, the, the language, the word that we used is this trinity. We believe that there is one God who exists in, in three persons. This is uh, foundational to the Christian faith uh, and to understand God is to understand him as triune. And it's not every day that I break out charts for you in the sermon uh, or uh, uh, you know, dem- demonstrations of what this looks like that that might look like a geometry assignment than uh, than anything else. But uh, just visually, perhaps it helps you uh, if you can see it um, to, to understand how how the, the Christian faith teaches who God is, that God uh, is one. There is only one true and living God. The, the Christian faith is a monotheistic faith. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But God isn't one in simplicity. God is one in a, a complex way in that he exists eternally as three persons revealed throughout the scriptures as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now keep track of it with me. These three persons the Bible presents as equal in their attributes with the same divine nature. And yet distinct. Each person is fully and completely God. And yet the persons of the Trinity are not identical. So God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not God the Father. But the Holy Spirit is God. God the Son. The Son, Jesus Christ is God. The Father is God. They are co-equal and sharing in all of the same attributes and divine nature. These, the differences among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are found in the way they relate to one another and how they each play a role in accomplishing their unified purpose that we see in creation. Uh, the unified purpose of God in creation, the, uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all at work in creation that we see throughout Scripture as well as in our redemption, in our salvation. Uh, in fact, I think this truth plays out most clearly when we look at our redemption uh, in, in the New Testament. Uh, we see in, uh, in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17, when Jesus is baptized, the scene unfolds that as Jesus is baptized, as he comes out from the water, the spirit of God descends like a dove. And from the heavens, the father speaks and says, this is my beloved son. With whom I am well pleased, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Jesus gave the Great Commission to the church in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, uh, he, he showed us that we are, our mission is to make disciples, and part of making disciples is baptizing those who profess faith in Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then in Ephesians 1 And perhaps one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14, we see the Trinity on display in our redemption because God the Father plans our salvation in eternity past. God the Son accomplishes our salvation through his death and resurrection and God the Spirit applies that redemptive work to our hearts, sealing us for the day of God's redemption in the future. So this is the Trinity. This is God as triune. To understand God as Father is to understand the fullness of who God is. We 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 no doubt should talk about being Jesus-centered. We want Jesus to be lifted high. And in fact, when you look at the Gospels, it says that when Jesus is lifted high, God gets the most glory. So we rightly exalt Jesus. The, the work of the Spirit is to exalt and glorify Jesus. And when Jesus, the Son, is glorified. The Father is glorified. Uh, But when we talk about God, I don't want want you to become one-dimensional in understanding God, but I want us to understand the fullness of of who God is. Um, And I also want us to be careful, because when we talk about God as as Father, we talk about God as Son and God as Spirit, these aren't just three roles played by the same person. This isn't just like, I am a, a son a father, uh, and a brother. Uh, This isn't one person with multiple roles. God is one person, or one in essence, and three in person. So he's not three roles being played by one person, nor is God three distinct gods, as if we believed in polytheism, and uh, that, that there were three separate gods. The Bible says that there is one God, but that one God has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Athanasian Creed, which has stood in the church for over 1500 years, says it like this. The early Christians would say, we worship one God in the Trinity and the Trinity in unity. We distinguish among the persons, but we do not divide the substance. The entire three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with one another so that we worship complete unity in Trinity. And Trinity, three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in unity. This is the foundation of the character and the nature of God according to the Christian faith. But I, I often, uh, I realize that often we understand, we hear God as Father. Uh, you probably don't unpack a systematic theology of the nature of God. Um, my guess is that, We might wrestle with the understanding of God as father based upon our own personal experience with our own earthly fathers. Uh, Perhaps uh, you've had a good father that it is easy for you to see the, the good and loving character of God the father. Or perhaps you've you've struggled and been hurt by your father. Have questions about how God could be father in light of your experience of your earthly father. You see, in in my own experience, I've learned that it's the character of God as Father that should shape my understanding of what human fathers are. Uh, But yet, I myself realize the the pain and the hurt and the distortion sometimes our earthly fathers can can provide that, that makes it difficult for us to see God the Father. You see, in light of the fatherhood of God, fathers should be gentle and compassionate, Protectors and providers, loving, patient, yet consistent and disciplined, faithful in instruction and the exhortation to walk in the truth and walk in wisdom. But it's not always that way. I don't know all of your stories, but in my own story, in my own life, my father wasn't a demonstration of the character of the fatherhood of God. Um, <clears throat> And when I look back on my life, I, as a believer, began to see the goodness of God the Father, but um, experienced the the pain and sometimes the confusion of having a deeply flawed earthly father. Um, and if that's your story, know that you're not alone. Uh, my, my dad... <clears throat> And my mom, I had, I was born out of wedlock. My dad didn't take responsibility of me until I was about four years old. I was raised the first three years by my mother and then a year in foster care before my dad, uh, by some encouragement from others, decided to take responsibility uh, for me. And then once my dad had uh, custody of me, he was twice married and twice divorced. Uh, and, And along the way, a lot of uh, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of bumps and bruises and hurts and confusion. And in fact, my senior year, I came home from work. I was working um, and uh, as a, uh, in the evenings after school, and I came home to the news that my dad and my stepmom were going to get a divorce. First time my dad and stepmom got a divorce, I was like five. I, I didn't fully understand the ramifications. and um, <clears throat> But this time... Uh, they had been married a number of years. I had stepbrothers and sisters, and um, I'd been a believer for about three, four years. Um, and I remember my dad telling me, and I just went out to my car and uh, opened up my Bible and began to, to read with the, the light on in my car. And uh, to understand how the fatherhood of God helps us wrestle with the inadequacy of our earthly uh, fathers or parents, uh, Uh, I came across Psalm 27. I I don't know if I was reading there or or what particular reason I went to this passage. But as I was reading Psalm 27, verse 10 says this. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. See, that's that's the beauty of the fatherhood of God is that uh, we don't judge um, our heavenly father by our earthly father. uh, But. We often can make sense of the pain and brokenness of our earthly fathers by the goodness and the faithfulness of our heavenly father. This morning, I want us to talk about God as father and what it means to please the father. What it means to live our Christian life in such a way that we please the father. In in verses one through 18 of of Matthew chapter six, we see something that we haven't seen uh, in the other pass in, in chapter five in particular, uh, at least we see it in a greater degree. And it's this emphasis on God as father. If you were to scan your eyes over verses one through 18, you would see uh, just repeated refrain and reference to God as father. Nine different times God is called father in chapter six, verses one through 18. Now, just compare that to Matthew five, uh, verses one through 48. There are three times that God is called Father. And so we see Jesus pressing home uh, a particular truth here of understanding God as Father and what it means uh, to to live uh, before the Father and pleasing the Father. Knowing knowing God as Father is evident throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just that it becomes new here in chapter 6, but it's especially highlighted, I feel like, for us to pay attention to. We've said that um, the Sermon on the Mount is... Uh, defining the character of those who are in God's kingdom. It's showing us how to live our lives as kingdom citizens. But in light of chapter 6, one one author says that you could also look at the Sermon on the Mount not just as the charter of God's kingdom, but as the royal family code. Uh, What it means to have God as our Father and to live as His children. Uh, Throughout the sermon, we've seen, uh, going back to verses 14 through 16, that we're to glorify our Heavenly Father. Uh, as we bear witness through our lives being salt and light. Uh, we, we saw last week that we are to imitate our Father as He is perfect. We should be perfect, particularly in the way that we show generous and gracious love instead of self-retaliation and animosity. And now we're going to see in verses 1-18 through 18 that we are to please our Heavenly Father. We are to live with Him as our primary audience as we live wholly devoted lives. To him, So we want to talk about pleasing God the Father through our spiritual devotion. And to do so, I think it's, it's important for us as we think about our spiritual devotion to know that being spiritually devout isn't necessarily what makes one a Christian. Christians should be spiritually devout. But being spiritually devout doesn't mean we are inherently Christians. You can go to church and be morally upright, give faithfully, pray regularly, even practice some form of fasting and not be a Christian. You can do all those things and still not be a Christian. So what is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? A Christian is someone who at some point in their life has turned from their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ alone as their savior, trusting in his death and resurrection for their forgiveness and eternal life. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus, the Bible says, will be saved. That's the offer of the gospel can I encourage you to, to, to the believers, to those who are here, a part of TCC? Do you, do you believe and, and will you remember that that's the good offer of the gospel? That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, turning from their sin and trusting in him, will be saved? It's deep and profound and yet simple to hold out to anyone. And if you don't know Christ, do you know that that's the offer that he holds out to you to call on his name? to turn from your way and to trust in him. I pray that you would do it today if you haven't. Anyone who trusts in Christ is given new life. We're changed. We can't stay the same. We we don't clean ourselves up and come to him. But once we come to him, we can count on him doing some work in our lives. Just like we love to to do renovations, I, I think, Uh, renovating your house as a a hobby, you know, in Michigan uh, to to do work, you know, and and tweak things here or there. Uh, That's that's the kind of thing that God does in the life, in the heart of a believer. It's an ongoing work of renovation, uh, which can lead to frustration. Right. If you've ever uh, renovated your home, we we, before we moved uh, our last move, we had uh, some issues with our plumbing and Uh, had water that damaged our ceiling and our floors. And when renovation is going on, it's very inconvenient, right? Like it's not pleasant. Things aren't where they should be. Things aren't back in place. But but you know the process is going to get you to where you want to be. In some ways, the Christian life is, is like that in its entirety. God's constantly renovating us and doing a work in us and changing us, transforming us. And as a Christian, our greatest desire is for, for that transformation to, to have its full effect, for us to live a life that's pleasing to him. And that's what we see in Matthew 6, 1 through 18, is, that, is how we can live in a manner that's pleasing to the Father. I want us to see two things in, in our passage um, that, that relate to what it means to, to please the Father. This is a little different this morning in that uh, really the summary of the sermon is Matthew 6, verse 1. Uh, And then Jesus describes and explains it more fully uh, in the following verses. Um, But the first thing I want us to see is that we please the father when we fight against seeking the attention and the approval of others and our spiritual devotion. We please the father when we fight against seeking the attention and the approval of others and our spiritual devotion. Verse 1 begins, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. See, verse 1 begins with this warning. Beware. It's a, it's a strong statement that says, Pay attention. Heed the warning that I'm giving. Beware of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen by others. see. Do you see, when, when we think about what it means to please the Father, the, the, the thing that I want to press home to us this morning is that motive matters. Motive matters. It's not just what you do, but it's why you do it that is brought out here in what Jesus is going to say in our passage. We've, we've already seen that we are to... Do our good deeds to be seen by others so that they would glorify our father as in heaven. That's what Matthew five sixteen says. So there it says that we are to do our good deeds and, and before others so that they will glorify God. Here it says, be careful not to practice your righteousness, not to do your good deeds in order to be seen by them. The motive is what Jesus is pointing out. In verse 16, he says, live in such a way that your good deeds lead others to glorify the father. Here, Jesus says, be careful in your spiritual devotion that you're not doing things spiritually in order merely to be seen by others, to gain the attention and with that, the approval of others. See, it's surprisingly challenging to keep our good deeds to ourself. You ever felt that way? Maybe maybe I'm just burying my soul and being honest here, but I I know sometimes uh, when I do a good deed, um, it's hard for me to keep it in. I want to bring it out somehow to maybe illustrate something or maybe I've done something around the house. And and, you know, I just want to find a way to slip it in to say, hey, by the way, did you notice Um, it's hard to keep our good deeds to ourselves. And throughout this passage, Jesus is, is seeking to show us the Uh, The seriousness with which we should consider our motives. Why we do what we do. Beware of doing your righteousness. Practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. You see throughout uh, verses 2 through uh, really 18. we're, We're going to see a repeated refrain. That Jesus is going to say don't be like the hypocrite. Don't be like the hypocrite. This is an interesting thought because typically when we think about a hypocrite today, it's someone who says one thing but does another. We, we typically put the emphasis on Christians are hypocrites when they talk about, talk a big game, but then their life doesn't reflect it. It's actually kind of the inverse of what's, what Jesus is saying here in our passage. Uh, if, you, if you look in verse 2, he says he's going to apply this to giving. The principle of not doing your good works in order to be seen by others because then you would lose the reward that God would give you. He's going to apply to giving in verses 2 through 4, to praying in verses 5 through 16, and then to fasting in verses uh, 17 through, through uh, 18. So he says in verse 2, "...when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised." By others, truly, I say to you, they have their reward. Don't be like the hypocrite. He says in in verse five, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. And then in verse 16, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. Making a big show of their fasting. The the word hypocrite is actually a a word that was used in the theater. It was used of an actor in Greek and Roman plays who would put on a mask and play a role in order to please the audience. Here we see that the idea of a hypocrite is one who longs for outward approval and neglects inward devotion Puts on the mask of spiritual devotion, but doesn't have the substance of a real pursuit of God in their life. <clears throat> if we're to please the father, we have to fight against this tendency and temptation to, to put on a show before others, but for there not to be substance in our real pursuit of God. Isaiah 29, we're going to be actually spending some time in Isaiah uh, during during the season of Advent, looking at Treasury in Christ and Isaiah coming up in December. I'm really looking forward to. But uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 29, verses 13, God is, is really just exposing the heart of his people and their rebellion and idolatry against him. And he says uh, of his people of Israel, they draw near me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me the fear of me is a commandment taught by men mere external without any internal devotion one author said that hypocrisy is the cruel combination of publicly motivated actions that are out of sync with our inner realities and here's the here's the dangerous thing about hypocrisy is generally speaking we are unaware of our hypocrisy. Generally speaking, we can often fool ourselves and be self deceived that we have a mask on that doesn't match up with the reality in our life. And and though we can be self deceived, it also becomes apparent at some point that what we're putting on before others isn't really who we are, and and then we, we have to face up to it. How will we respond? What will we do? So Jesus is saying, don't be like the hypocrite who looks for the approval and the attention of others. And in fact, he says pretty, pretty starkly three different times in in this passage in verse two and verse five and verse 16. He says this statement. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. Do you want to know what the reward of a hypocrite looks like? The reward of seeking the attention and the approval of others? You ready for this? Here it is. You have your reward. So they saw you. So they approved you. So they applauded you. The word have received that's used here is actually a technical word uh, that uh, was used to describe financial transactions. And in the the first century, it was a providing a receipt for a sum paid in full. When you live for the attention and the approval of others, it makes the Christian faith transactional. I'm doing this so that you'll see me and, and and pay attention to me and approve me. Jesus is saying that's that's all the reward you will get. When you when you have a public face that doesn't match an inward Devotion. So in our lives, how do we know that we're seeking the approval of, of man in our spiritual devotion? What, what might it look like? This isn't uh, exhaustive, but, but consider that you, you might be looking for the approval and the attention of others if you grumble and complain when your actions or your service isn't noticed. Nobody saw what I did. Nobody paid attention to what I did. There, there might be seeking approval or attention if envy and jealousy um, is in your heart when others get credit or are noticed. It's sometimes subtle that we can have a sense of entitlement that I should be the one that gets to say this or that based on how much I've helped or given or served. It can, it can be subtle, but these things are real. We, we, we have to address the self-calculating nature uh, that sometimes creeps into our faith. This sense of if I do this, what will they think of me? Or what will I get if I do this? Or who will be watching me if I do this? But I also think that sometimes... It's not so much that we're we're doing something just to get attention and approval. I think there's another way this plays out in our hearts, and it's that we look at what we do in our spiritual lives, especially within the church and the community of God's people, just merely through the lens of what other people will think. Maybe we're not seeking their approval or attention, but we're wrapped with guilt because we're spending so much time thinking about what this or that person may think of me or or we we will do something we'll, we'll do just enough because we're afraid that somebody will think we're not committed or uh, we, we view things through the lens of how other people see things. So so our focus isn't on pleasing God, but our focus is on either pleasing or appeasing others. Jesus says this isn't what true spiritual devotion looks like. We have to pay attention to both the self calculating nature that can creep into our spiritual devotion as well as uh, having having paying more attention to the approval and, and appeasing of others than to pleasing God. The Christian life shouldn't be defined by self-congratulation or self-calculation, but the the Christian life, our spiritual devotion, is defined by self-sacrifice, self-forgetfulness. Serving and trusting God with what we do regardless of who notices and who gets the credit. So we please the Father when we fight against this desire, the longing to be seen and approved by others in our devotion. But Jesus doesn't just stop there when he talks about giving and, and praying and fasting. He, he presses further to say that we please the Father when our spiritual devotion is sincere and we rest And the promise of his reward. We please the father in our spiritual devotion when it's sincere. And we rest in the promise of his reward. You see in relation to each of the the practices that he mentions. Giving, praying and fasting. Look at what Jesus says in verse 3. When you give to the needy. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret. In verse six, when he talks about praying, he says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And then in fasting, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Just go about your day normally before others that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. You you see how Jesus is repeating the same refrains in, in each of these practices. Jesus is saying that secrecy safeguards sincerity, Uh, a willingness to practice our faith with an attention solely upon pleasing God rather than others is what makes our faith sincere. I've already mentioned verse 16, where Jesus says, do your good deeds so that you'll be seen by others so that they'll glorify the father. Jesus isn't calling us to some reclusive faith, you know, where we're. We just keep it to ourselves. Uh, I think our culture pushes us to uh, to keeping our faith to ourselves. And and Jesus is, is here saying your faith should be deeply personal and deeply sincere. And that in light of verse 16, when you have a sincere faith, then you will live your life in such a way not to please people. Your motive won't be to please people. Your motive will be to please God. And in pleasing God, you'll lead others To delight and glorify the Father. I think the pressing issue is the sincerity of our faith. God desires that our spiritual devotion would be wholly focused on him. Sincere faith. When it comes to your spiritual life. Who you are in private is who you truly are. Let me say that again, when it comes to your spiritual life, who you are in private is who you truly are. When there's no eyes on you, how do you live? When there are no other eyes on you, what does your Christianity look like? And do you pray? I know you pray at meals when you're with people. I know that you pray at church. And these things are good. They feed us. They nourish us. Do you, do you stop and linger in prayer after you've read the Word? When you're stressed and tired, do you, do you stop and, and, and ask God to, to help you? When you're at wit's end and angry with a friend or a spouse or a coworker, Do you do you stop and ask God to intervene and help you respond with generous love rather than personal uh, retaliation or animosity? Do you fast? Do you, do you set aside time to, t- to take away things from your life? Maybe even food so that you might focus in on God? Do you worship? Is the praise of God on your mind and on your lips in your day? I'm not saying you've got to listen to K-Love, you know. Uh, but but is, is your heart welling up with praise for God? Do you find the words? <clears throat> I know perhaps you give when there's a real pressing need, but... Is giving a part of your devotion. An overflow of your worship. See this is the measure. Of our Christian life. And, and he's not saying that nobody else. You can't talk to anybody about any of these things. Right. It, it's not swearing to absolute secrecy. You know. Um, but, but it's about who are you seeking to please. Whose attention do you have. When you do these things. And, and if nobody else noticed. If nobody else knew. Would you do them. That's what that's what he's getting at. He's wanting a sincere devotion, not a pretentious devotion. And I think this type of devotion also requires discipline. You know, when when you think about giving sincerely so that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing, that that statement isn't like, a, you know, you've got to put your left hand back when you put the money back. You know, in the box or like if you're online, you can only do it one hand. Right. Like that's not that's not what he's saying. But 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 he's saying that the the focus shouldn't be this calculated trying to to let other people know. He's kind of exaggerating to the extent to say um, you should do it in such a way that, that you don't even have mind. To how you're giving fully and and wanting it to be known uh, to others. It's a a focus on uh, on on pleasing God rather than on anyone else paying attention or are you getting any credit Um, when when you pray going into your room like it takes you have to plan to go into your room and shut the door and pray. You can pray in the open. You can pray out in the living room. That's totally fine, right? That's not what Jesus is applying here. Um, You don't have to just go into a closet somewhere um, and and shut the door to do these things. But to to pray like this requires some intentionality, right? To fast and not be, you know, mopey all day takes some intentionality, right? Like uh, it, it may mean that you really have to be intentional as you're engaging people to uh, to, to go about your day as normal. But it also takes some planning, right? Like nobody just plans to go without food for a day or a given of time until they planned it. You don't just wake up one morning and say, usually, uh, I'm, you know, today's the day. I'm just going to not eat today. And then you're like, oh, I've got a lunch appointment. It takes some intentionality, right, to, uh, to, to plan fasting and praying and giving, I want us to think about this for a moment, this discipline of these things next week. We're going to look a little bit more in depth about how to give. But just walking through these few things, I want to give some encouragement of practicing these disciplines sincerely. How do we give? We, we say at TCC that giving is an act of worship that should be done joyfully, voluntarily, uh, generously and, and even sacrificially. When, when we give, we want our giving to be generous. We, we want our giving to be intentional we want our giving to be voluntary. It's, it's motivated by grace, not guilt. We're freed up in Christ and recognize that all we have is His. So we give voluntarily and expectantly, expecting that God would work through our giving to meet real needs and advance His mission. How do we pray? We don't have time to go through verses 7 through 15. Uh, perhaps in a, a future time, we'll come back and, and dwell more here. But Jesus says when you pray, don't think that God hears you more if you talk more or you talk fancier. Like there's not a there's not like a certain way that you have to come to God, you know, where you, you put the right all the right words together and, it, you know, and you take on a prayer voice. Uh, he's not saying he's not saying that we need to, to focus on those things. In fact, the the exact opposite, he says, if you think that you can somehow do something either in the amount of your words and the nature of your words that makes your prayer more acceptable to God, then you're off base. Like you're thinking about God like, like those who don't know God think about God. They think, well, I should do this or that, do something so that God will hear me and be pleased with me. You have God as your father. He is already pleased with you. Because when he looks at you, he sees your elder brother, Jesus, Christ perfect in righteousness on your behalf. And in Him, He delights in you as His child, and He knows what you need before you ask. So when you pray, pray with a focus on God. Start with your Heavenly Father, our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name, God's glory. His holiness. God, I want You and who You are to be rightly seen in my life. I want Your, your glory, Your holiness, Your perfection, Your righteousness, God, to, to, to define my life and what I'm all about. I want Your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. God, Your will be done. Start there when you pray. Start with God. And then, share with God your concerns. Isn't this the the beauty of the Christian life that the 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 temple court that that used to separate the people from the presence of God has been done away with through the death of Christ on the cross on our behalf. And we can come into God's presence through prayer. And to the father, we bring our concerns, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you, Peter says. Share your concerns, share your needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Father, forgive us our sins, our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors and our temptations. God, lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one. Jesus reminds us in verses 14 and 15 that the Christian life, the vertical dimension of the Christian life can never be separated from the horizontal. If you go about thinking that uh, you can you can have animosity and division and bitterness and hatred towards another and just carry on with God we're, we're misunderstanding the nature of grace and the nature of the gospel that reconciles us to God and reconciles us to one another. He presses home to that truth. So when you pray, pray like this. <clears throat> Here's an acronym for you or acrostic. Uh, perhaps there's a better way. I don't know which one. Pray. Praise. Begin with praise. Worship God for who He is. That's what we see at the beginning uh, of the, the Lord's Prayer. Repent. Confess your sin to God. Acknowledge your need for Jesus. Spend time dealing with your own heart before God when you come. Repenting sin. Confessing it. And, and delighting in God's promise that He will forgive. He is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, He will forgive us. Ask, intercede for specific needs in your lives and the lives of others. Give us this day our daily bread. Intercede not only for your needs, but for the needs of others. And then yield, surrender your life to following him wherever and however he leads. When you pray, pray, God, your will be done in me. God, give me today the wisdom and the discernment to know how to live in a manner that's pleasing to you. And then fasting. We see in, in verses 16 through through 18 that when we fast, we, we're really to, to go about our day as normal, anointing our head and washing our face that our fasting may not be seen by others. Fasting is a desire, is, is a discipline that expresses our desire and our hunger for God. So when you fast, focus on God. When you fast, abstain from food or some... Uh, Something in your life that uh, perhaps you feel like can can help you turn your focus great more greatly to God. I feel like in our day we can fast from social media. We can we can fast sometimes from particular forms of, of entertainment. And when we do, here's the key to fasting. Whatever you take out and abstain from, substitute with time of prayer and study. Substitute with time of prayer and study. And then as you fast, fast in such a way to taste and see that the Lord is good. So these things are how we practice these spiritual disciplines, sincerely and intentionally. The word that comes to my mind is earnest. I want to have an earnest faith. I want us to be earnest in our faith. The dictionary describes earnest as serious in intention, purpose or effort. Sincerely, zealous. My prayer is that God would make us earnest Christians, sincerely zealous to please God, our Father. We fight seeking the approval of others by being sincere, wholly focused on God. But God also holds out to us a promise, a promise of reward. In verses 4, verse 6 and verse 18, we see a repeated refrain, refrain, the same exact statement. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. As we live the Christian life, we can rest in the promise of God's reward. Notice it doesn't say that if you give in secret, God will reward you with even greater wealth in this life. It doesn't say if you pray in secret um, and sincerely enough with enough faith, then God will grant your request. It doesn't say if you fast genuinely enough that God will show you more favor and do more things for you. It just says that God will reward you. And I think part of the point is is in the fact that it doesn't tell us what the reward is. Um, true spiritual devotion, though, we know is not a transaction with God. True spiritual devotion is communion with God. It's about relationship with God. It says when we do it in secret, our Father who is in secret sees. The Father sees. How encouraging and comforting that he sees and he rewards. He, he knows when we restrain ourselves. He knows when we give sacrificially. He knows when we pray earnestly. When we fast because we long for more of him. He knows when we go out of our way to love and serve others. When we sincerely sacrifice for the good of another. When we, when we care for another person. He sees all those things. And we can rest that he will reward. It doesn't say what the reward is. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying that the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but they are the activity itself in consummation. It's not just that you get a trophy for, for doing good on the team, but the, the, the true, truest reward is the activity itself in consummation. And so when, in, in regards to giving, the activity of giving in consummation is that we see a real need met. And we learn that God is our ultimate provider. The, the ultimate consummation of our praying is that we commune with our Heavenly Father. And we know that we have access to His presence and He delights for us to come in. When we fast, the, the true consummation of our fasting is that we know and are more deeply satisfied in God. That's the reward. And ultimately, we could say it is the reward is getting more of God. It's a relationship with Him. Christianity isn't isn't in the end mercenary, nor is it an ethic of disinterestedness. It doesn't just say do these things without any attention to passion or desire. But instead, it's a relationship with God. It is delight in God that motivates the reward isn't the point. The reward is God and relation with him. Our motivation, if we are to hold our reward is to know God and to gaze at God. In his presence. I love being a father to a little girl. And one of my favorite things about being a father to a little girl <clears throat> is that she loves to dress up just so that she can get her daddy's attention. <clears throat> She'll put on her favorite dress, put on a headband, which you know is a work of the Spirit, and when she wants to put one of those on, she wants to put on lip gloss, put on her fancy shoes. And when she does these things, that first thing on her mind is, "I want to go show Daddy." This happens a lot on Sunday. She'll run in uh, to this place and run up to me and smile and twirl and smile. And she'll say, "Look at me, Daddy. Do you like my dress?" On my good days, I, I stop and I just delight. I just delight in my daughter. I love your dress. You look so lovely. You are beautiful, Amelia. Your daddy loves you. On my bad days, I'll be too busy and I won't stop and notice. And as I thought about that reality and I think about what it means to please our Heavenly Father, God is never like I am on my bad days. God always sees, He always notices, He always delights. That is the character of God as our father, is he's never too busy for his children, and he always delights in our sincere spiritual devotion. So we can rest in the promise of his reward. Let's pray.